Is there a message from the Rastafari faith that you think more of us have, uh, as Black people should embrace or Jamaicans? Greetings, apreneurs. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Secrets Podcast, the show that uncovers the secrets to win with books beyond book sales and dominate entrepreneurship. Through exclusive author interviews, stories, and must-have resources, you will discover some of the secrets and strategies to thrive with books and generate lasting income. I invite you to become an entrepreneur ambassador and join me in my mission to raise up 10,000 Caribbean entrepreneurs by 2030. Spread the word about the podcast and encourage more people to increase their impact and income with books beyond book sales. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Greetings, Apreneurs. Welcome to episode 137 of the Entrepreneur Secrets podcast. I'm your host, C. Ruth Taylor. And in today's show, along with talking about my latest entrepreneurship venture, we'll be continuing to highlight and celebrate reggae month in Jamaica by showcasing authors from the island who have written works that celebrate Jamaica's history or icons. And so last week was the episode with Howard McGowan, who wrote a book called An Odyssey in Reggae and Journalism. This week, we're going to be looking at Rastafari Beliefs, a critical analysis by Clinton Chisholm. The Reverend Dr. Chisholm was one of the consulting editors for one of the most authoritative texts on Rastafari, which is Chanting Down Babylon. And uh, I did a little Q&A session with him to find out more about this book. And so you're going to hear an excerpt from that Q&A session because what we're trying to do is to showcase things that are indigenous to Jamaica, you know, Rastafari is, an, is part of the religious framework of this island. And reggae's biggest ambassador, Bob Marley, was a, was a member of the Rastafarian community or Rastafari community as Reverend Chisholm would correct me. And so I want to ask you to listen. You may not agree with everything that he has to say, but listen and get the book. And his aim is to teach more people about Rastafari and also about Christianity so that you can understand the similarities and the differences and know how to better engage with our Rastafari friends. And then I'll tell you the latest in our entrepreneurship venture. So stay tuned. All right. In terms of the latest in my entrepreneurship ventures. <laughs> I am so excited. So I started as a nonfiction author. I remember when I interviewed Joanna Penn and listened to her story. And when I interviewed Dr. Sharma Taylor, both of whom, you know, have been fiction authors. Joanna went from nonfiction to fiction 
and she still writes both. I had promised them that one day I would try to write fiction, <laughs> at least one book. And so between February 2 and 3, Friday, Saturday, over two days, I wrote a novella, <laughs> a second chance novella. And I was shocked because <laughs> I'd never done it before. And I was shocked and surprised by the delight that I found in the process. And I was doing it for me. And in listening to Joanna's last episode where she interviewed a PR person for authors, she explained that a lot of her fiction is based on real stories. So she would do the research and then you would add the fictional elements. And so with this new book, Carissa's Second Chance, you know, I wrote it for me and said if it would bless somebody, then it would help. So it, it, I wrote it to give myself hope and I have infused in it real places because I want people to visit the Caribbean, to visit Jamaica. So I'm promoting Jamaica, brand Jamaica in it. And uh, so the places in the book are real, but the story surrounding those places a large part of that is fictionalized and some of it influenced by um, real stories. So I'm recognizing that that is possible my style because with the nonfiction, I am narrative nonfiction. I really tell stories. And in when I republished my book, Unshackled Queen, I had used pseudonyms. When I did Us Girls, we used pseudonyms to try to hide the identity of the persons involved. And so this is like coming full circle. And the truth is, I don't know what happened along the way, but fiction was my first love. In high school, I would read two to three fiction books per week. And along the way, I just stopped reading fiction. I don't buy fiction except like if it's one of my authors. And even then I, I am reluctant to read it. And I didn't want to publish fiction. So my business partner, I remember with her book, she had a romance novel. And I told her point blank, I don't publish fiction. And I didn't want to. And I ended up doing it. And no, the tables have turned. <laughs> So in the space of eight days, this novella has been structurally edited by a novelist. It has been copy edited. I use ChatGPT to help with the editing, not in the writing of the story. It all came from my head. I only use ChatGPT with the editing. It has been formatted. And now I'm in the cover design process. I thought my first book was written fast. You know, written fast and then developed in in and published in nine months. This one written in two days and developed in eight days where it is at the stage where it's already formatted and edited is just a cover design. And I am in shock. And, and I, I'm going to use this book as a tool of outreach to encourage people who are struggling, you know, to give them hope. And so I'm going to read. I'll read the blurb 
I can see myself doing seminars with this because normally you think of nonfiction that way, but I can see, see myself doing seminars based on this fiction book. So entrepreneurship, <laughs> entrepreneurship also extends to fiction writers. And so this is like the dawning of a new day um, for me. So here's the, the, the blurb on the front cover. It also talks about, you know, the key question or perhaps what is the hook in a world where second chances are rare and redemption is hard won. Does Carissa dare to dream again? The book is titled Carissa's Second Chance. Shattered by the betrayal of her best friend and the infidelity of her fiancé, 33-year-old author Carissa Barclay thought she'd lost it all. But just when she's about to give up on love, fate intervenes, hope flickers anew when she is reintroduced to the dashingly handsome, seasoned author and educator Dario Croft, whom she had met many years ago. His warmth, wisdom, and tenderness ignite a spark in Carissa's weary heart, rekindling her belief in second chances. But Dario is a divorcee with two adult children. And Carissa is part of a community that frowns upon divorce. Does she dare dream again to believe that the promise of a happily ever after will be fulfilled by this unlikely suitor old enough to be her father? With the odds completely stacked against them, will their love story end in heartbreak? All right, so... <laughs> You know, it would have been nice if everything is set in place to release this on Valentine's Day, but maybe our releasing the ebook for Valentine's Day would be a thing. But let's see what will happen. All right, let's get to the interview with uh, Reverend Dr. Clinton Chisholm on Rastafari Beliefs. We are happy to have Reverend Chisholm here with us. For those who don't know him, Reverend Chisholm is long renowned as the most well-versed Christian apologist in conversations with Rastafari. He knows more about the movement than most researchers and Rastas alike. His book is a critical assessment based on 40 plus years of primary source analysis and is a treasure trove of information. Well, my joy to join you, Ruth. Thanks for the invitation. And I want people who are joining us to recognize that this is not a fly-by-night book. I grew up with Rastafari Breswin in my young years on Barnet Lane in Montego Bay. In fact, I was tutored by a dreadlock Rastafari on the saxophone, the tenor saxophone, as a young boy at the Montego Bay Boys Club um, establishment where I was a band member. That's uh, quite a number of years, going back to 1965, 66, thereabout. Wow. And also, I got my abiding nickname, which only my very close friends from way back then would know, Bo Peep, was given to me by a Rastafari man. We were witnessing from a Pentecostal Church Assemblies of God in the Barnet Lane area where I grew up. And 
I we had some white guys from America who joined our assemblies of, local assemblies of God members, young people. And I told them before we went out on the streets, do not argue with anybody who has dreadlocks. Call one of the Jamaicans to talk. And I saw a young man from the States talking with a Rastafari. And I went over and took over the conversation. And when I did that, the Rastafari man said to the white guy who was still insisting on talking, rest, make I eye to this little boy people. In other words, you miss your sheep. What are you doing with, with, um, with white people? And so I got that name, Bo Peep, and only my very close friends of way back then would know that nickname and sometimes still use it. So the book helps people who are interested to work in evangelism with Rastafari to get fundamental facts that are necessary for dialogue with them. And we trust that God may be pleased to use the material in the book to lead you or others to share with a Rastafari-minded person or a person in the movement itself that they might reconsider the claims of Jesus Christ on their lives. I trust you'll find the experience informative and helpful in your enterprise of either being educated sociologically, religiously, theologically on the movement of Rastafari, and also evan evangelistically, if you are sharing your witness for Jesus Christ with Rastafari brethren or with young people who are minded to go over from Christianity the rest of our faith all right thank you rev so you have intimate knowledge <laughs> of it Very. and so i am going to begin with two questions this is the question i think this is the the the, the core question the key question was his imperial majesty haile selassie the first the black man's god well some rastas and i have to guard it they say some not all still regard him though he died years ago, as the black man's God. There are some who just respect him as a black icon, but not as God. But for us who are not, who just respect his imperial majesty for his work in the early years of his empire, who just re respect him as a proud and prestigious black man, he's not God. He's a worshiper of God by his own profession in his autobiographical work and also by works done about him by his close friends like Christine Sanford. Okay, that was a short, concise <laughs> response. All right, so here's another big question and a claim of many Rastas. I was listening to an interview with Yendi Phillips and I think um, Grams Morgan, and he mentioned the connection between Haile Selassie the first and King Solomon. So here's a question. Is there an unbroken blood-related line of Ethiopian emperors going back to King Solomon? It's a claim made also in the Ethiopian constitution that was given to Ethiopia by his imperial majesty, but there's no historical support for that claim. In fact, the people argue about the blackness of his imperial majesty. It was not really Negroid. It was more closer to uh, Jews or people of that ethnic stock than to Negroes. In the Song of Solomon, people usually confuse the section that says, I am black and comely, ye daughters of Jerusalem, and saying, since Solomon is the author, he was writing about himself. Not necessarily so, as any student of his 
of literature would know. A, a person might be author might be writing about himself or herself or somebody else. And how we know that he was not writing about himself is that the word black in that Song of Solomon in Hebrew is a, a word ending with the feminine, uh, feminine ending A-H, Shehorah, which suggests that a woman is the singer in the song cycle, not a man. So Solomon was not writing about himself. Is the is the 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 bride in that cycle who is singing at that point? I am black and comely, ye daughters of Jerusalem. Shehorah, a word spoken of a female or by a female, not of the male. So Solomon has no connection. As Tadeus Tamrat, an Ethiopian Orthodox Church historian, says, the 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 ancient Empire of Ethiopia attached itself and felt that there was some affinity with it and the beleaguered Israelites going back centuries before. And therefore, they talk about the Solomonic dynasty, which was not a real historical linkage of the dynasty. It's just that they identified themselves with the royal house of, of Israel because of their beleaguered situation under the marauding uh, Muslims in the 12th century, I think it was. So there's no historical link between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon and between the Imperial House of Ethiopia and Solomon. All right. How would you describe Rastafarianism, a culture, a religion, or a cult? And I know you're going to make a correction there. So <laughs> Rastafari brethren don't like isms. So they would prefer the Rastafari movement or the Rastafari faith. But whatever you call it, it is a subset of Christianity. It is a breakaway from Orthodox Christianity. The tenets of the early Rastafari brethren picked up on the Bible. And therefore, they were drawing on aspects of Christianity. So they were a small sect, S-E-C-T. We don't use cult anymore in theology or in sociology because it has a negative connotation. So you have a, a, a religious sect, a smaller grouping of a larger grouping. So in my view... Rastafari can be regarded quite legitimately as a sect of Christianity. Okay, not as orthodox as Christians would like, but as sect nonetheless, because its main icons, the Bible and his imperial majesty, are Christian icons. The Bible is a Christian document, a Judeo-Christian document to be more specific, and his imperial majesty was the defender of the Christian faith in imperial Ethiopia. So I would call it a sect, S-E-C-T, of Christianity, not a cult or, or anything that is that negative. Okay, so it is a sect of Christianity. So since it's a sect of Christianity, what are the emperor's views on Rastafarianism and Christianity? What, what, what were his views? The, the, his imperial majesty was very proud of being the defender of the Christian faith in his country, just like the Queen of England, now the King of England, officially, is a defender of the Christian faith in that part of the world. And he was a faithful, devout member of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So fussy was he about people knowing about the Christian faith, and his name, Haile Selassie, by the way, was given to him at his baptism in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is a Christian church, one of the oldest Christian churches in the world to date. He was given the name Haile Selassie, which means power or might of the Trinity, 
alongside of his family name, you know, Kafari Makonen. His surname was Makonen, his father's name given to the family. So in his early years, he would be called Lij Tafari Makonen because he was a son of a nobleman. Then he would have different um, ranks in his succeeding years. Then he became Dejra's Mak, uh, another military title. He was then uh, Negus. He was Ras. But he ceased being a Ras as far back as 1928, I think, if memory serves me correctly, becoming a Negus then until 1930, when he assumed the supreme uh, uh, title, Negus and Agast, king of the kings of Ethiopia, was a devout Christian and had no problems showing his devotion to God. In fact, I would like you to read for me, uh, please, page 41, His Imperial Majesty's Declaration, when he opened the seminar or Congress on Evangelism in Berlin in 1966, the same year, by the way, in which he came to Jamaica. Very telling of his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Listen to him in this quotation. All right. So it is from the book Rastafari Beliefs, a critical analysis by Clinton Chisholm, forward by Billy Hall. And I'm going to pick up at page 40. In 1966, His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I visited Jamaica and received a splendid welcome at the airport from the predominantly Rastafarian crowd. The Emperor had occasion to address the Jamaican Parliament and informed. These are, and I quote, because I know of the sentiments the people of Jamaica entertain for the Ethiopian people, I have always wished to come and visit Jamaica. Now, thank God, the wish of mine has been fulfilled. Lastly, may God give wisdom and his blessings to the people of Jamaica. Thank you. It was in 1966 as well that the emperor opened the World Congress on Evangelism in Berlin with these words. And I quote, the love shown in Christ by our God to mankind should constrain all of us who are followers and disciples of Christ to do all in our power to see to it that the message of salvation is carried to those of our fellows for whom Christ our Savior was sacrificed, but who have not had the benefit of hearing the good news. Christians, let us arise and labor to lead our brothers and sisters to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who only can give life in its fullest sense. What we see from the speeches of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie I, is a professing Christian who is proud of his country's adherence to the Christian religion for centuries. We also see a human being who recognizes his reliance on the Almighty for everything and one who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior of humankind. So, so there, there you, you have, have it. it. From the Imperial Majesty, a devout yes. Christian. Right. And or, publicly affirmed his commitment to Christianity and the spread of the gospel to those who have not yet heard about All Jesus right. Christ or surrendered their lives to him. 
as Lord and Savior. How has Jamaica benefited from Rastafari? Culturally, there's no question about it that the Rastafari brethren and the movement in general has given us a sense of pride in our blackness. We are at ease in our blackness and the Rastafari brethren have contributed significantly to that. We are at ease with our cultural output, reggae, a national rhythmic pattern that we are proud of. And even if you claim that you don't listen to reggae much, when you hear a, a reggae beat going, even if your toes alone are working up in your shoes but your body is not moving, you're still recognizing the effectiveness, the effectiveness of the reggae rhythm. Thanks to the Rastafari brethren, you have given us that sense of at easeness with who we are as a predominantly black people. And we can, we can exalt, lift up, and applaud the cultural, amoral aspects of Jamaica's heritage and culture. Reggae. I like, as I wear locks, but I'm not a Rasta. <laughs> I have less, less locks these days than um, the long flowing one. But one of the All things- All of that come short? <laughs> yes. <laughs> one of the things I love about Rasta is that it gives us a sense of pride as black people. Is there a message from the Rastafari faith that you think more of us have, as black people should embrace or Jamaicans? I joined them very early in my first book of advocating against Christian churches, especially, and Christians in their private residential openings, you know, having pictures purporting to be photographs of Jesus. We don't know exactly how he looked, but he certainly was not white, white, white skin and blue eyed. So those are artistic impressions. And I said, that I don't see any need for any church to have up any of those in the chapel, in any, in any building on the church's compound or in private homes. Tear them down. But if you don't have the courage to do that, at least so you don't lead young people astray. Put a bold thing below them. This is not a photograph. This is simply an artistic impression. But I don't see any reason why churches or Christians should have those white, white-skinned, blue-eyed uh, pictures of Jesus hanging up anywhere. So what if Jesus were white? Should, 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 should people of other races um, worship him? Does his color really matter? Um, should we only worship a God in our own image? Can you shed some light on that? Well, let's take the hypothetical. If he were white, if in history he appeared as a white-looking person, he's still the sovereign savior of the world. His blood is efficacious for any ethnic group or any people group in the world. He just happened not to have been white. Factually, historically, he was not white. Grew up in the Middle East, he would not be white. And notice somebody had to kiss him in the garden where he was going to be arrested. Otherwise, they couldn't mm -hmm. tell him different from the rest of the people. So he definitely looked more like the people who were there, especially the person who, the follower who kissed him, to differentiate him from one of them with whom he would have shared similar ethnic looks. But if he were white or blue or pink, he would still be the sovereign savior of the world whose blood only can cleanse from sin. But he happened not to have been white. So we have to go with the facts of history to the best as we can reconstruct them and just proclaim that he was not white. My friend Bill Spencer 
with Dread Jesus argued a similar line of argumentation in that book that it really does not matter the coloration, but he definitely was looking more like Negroes or closer to Arabs than he would to a Caucasian or a Caucasian, Caucasian ethnic group. Okay, thank you. Any final words, Rev, as we seek to wrap this up? I'm just asking people to be more critical about what they read and how they digest what they read. Be critical in your thinking. Use your brains. God has given you brains not to in your head to buck and wear hat or mantle or cap. He wants you to think. Think critically. Ask anybody questions for clarity on what they say and what they mean by what they say. And that's one of my objectives in writing the book, that you would raise questions with me, check my sources, check my argumentation, and if you find me logically flawed, then let me know that. I don't have any problem with it. I am an ordinary human being. I don't know everything. So I can make mistakes just like anybody else. Thank you so much. All right. I trust that you enjoyed that interview. For persons in Jamaica, the book is at the Jamaica Baptist Union Bookshop on Washington Boulevard. It's also at Urban Books in New Kingston. And I'll put the full details in the show notes want to encourage to get that book Rastafari Beliefs and also get Howard McGowan's book An Odyssey in Reggae and Journalism these are treasures these are legacy books and so, so subscribe to the YouTube channel and share this episode with a friend I'm reminding you of making many books there is no end so go pen it to win it and dominate entrepreneurship Ciao for now, until next time.